0: Our senses are being besieged in a way that they never had before, and the brain is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It is responding, it is reacting, and it is adapting. So it says, okay, well I guess we don't need all of this like memory and recall and stuff like that, and I guess we don't really need to link the two hemispheres for all this shit anymore, so I'm just going to cut this connection and clear this drawer out. And all of a sudden people can't, their recall or their linear functions are all fucked up, and they're like, what? Wait And they can't carry a long thought, or, or they have attention problems. And the brain's going, what do you want from me? All you're throwing at me is this short, crazy, rapid, disjointed shit. I'm giving you exactly what you want, and you're getting upset. And the people are saying, no, 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 no. I want to be the old way, and and I want to be the new way, too.
1: Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. Last weekend, I co-facilitated a discussion at the Body Hacking Conference here in Austin on MDMA and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy with MAPS MDMA clinician Saj Razvi, a far-ranging and fascinating conversation about the successful completion of phase two research and the movement in into the final stage of research that will clear MDMA for prescription health insurance covered deployment by 2021. Cross your fingers, folks. It's a huge, huge issue. Why? Because not only is this new protocol more than five times as effective as current pharmaceutical interventions for PTSD, but also we're beginning to understand that Almost all of us in modern civilization suffer one form or another of trauma. In this conversation with documentarian, activist, and psychedelic treatment intake facilitator, my old friend Charles Shaw, we get into the root of this issue. The confluence of complex forces that combine to create a world in which the human being is no longer adapted or compatible to our environment. As has been my experience of Charles since we first met on a national 30-date speaking tour and uh, documentary film project in 2010, listening to what he has to say is not always fun, but it is always fascinating, evocative, provocative, and worth a careful listen. I find Charles to be one of the most well-educated journalists that I know and one of the most daring gives no fucks communicators when it comes to drawing attention to the serious grave humanitarian issues that we face collectively in this day and age. And I would be remiss as the host of a podcast all about learning how to be better ancestors, not to address these problems head on. So in what became ultimately a four hour conversation, this episode being merely the first part, we get into the nature of trauma and addiction and the stark reality that in the words of Christopher Ryan, most human beings alive today are civilized to death That as difficult as it may be, the time is now for turning our attention to the wounds that we all carry and to begin the good work of healing them. Before we begin this episode, I want to thank the seven people who gave new reviews to Future Fossils Podcast on iTunes. It is so helpful for getting this show into the ears and minds of other people who can appreciate and benefit from it. Also, thanks to Janoir Ciel, the newest Patreon supporter for Future Fossils. I will be putting out both the recording of my MDMA-assisted psychotherapy discussion from the Body Hacking Conference, as well as the live set of music I performed at the MAPS Benefit Dinner on Patreon here very shortly. Also, if you do not want to wait To hear the rest of this conversation with Charles Shaw I released the entire four-hour discussion As well as three full conversations About Blade Runner 2049 And the future of human evolution With film scholars and philosophers John David Ebert, J.F. Martell, and Barry Vacker That's available to Patreon supporters You can go to patreon.com slash Garfield. And get yourself hooked up with a consistent early unedited episodes, special extras, music, art, etc. So so if you're feeling generous and you recognize the value of these conversations to the commons, You can ship two, five bucks a month or whatever. It will be returned beyond all sane measure of comparison with my gratitude, affection, and various digital goodies. So thank you all and enjoy this intelligent, profound, and very challenging conversation with Charles Shaw.
0: I'm grateful that the month interim here actually happened because um, I wasn't exactly sure where I was with my own personal footing a month ago. I, like, I knew I I wanted to start saying things again and coming out of my shell, but I, I wasn't really there yet. This was a really good time. A lot happened in the last month. Yeah, you know? like what? And, uh, well, it's complicated. I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit with you. I don't want to give too much away, but I have both been on, you know, a uh, you know this this kind of tail end of this like crisis phase of my life, and this you know period of acute trauma and grieving and all this shit. And I was coming out of all of this stuff while having to confront you know what it is like now as a middle aged man to try to navigate my life only equipped with the hustle and abilities of you know a twenty or thirty year old.
1: Uh-huh, like uh-huh, yeah. I never.
0: I never really transitioned into graceful middle age because I never got married, never had kids, never, like, I I just remained a nomadic artist. My actual level of social responsibility is pretty much nothing. Um, (laughs) Yet yet everything I do is, you know, essentially trying to contribute something to the social and cultural canon, Mm. you know, so it's weird. I'm, I'm existing as this, like, I'm outside the system. I'm pretty much an outlaw. I've been self-financed or foundation-financed. I haven't had to play the Hollywood game. Haven't really had to play. I played the publishing house game. Um, I played the Hollywood game a little bit as a documentarian, and I got a film distributed, and I had an A-list celebrity and all this shit, but, like, none of that is really what it appears to be either, you know? Yeah. And... Uh, and then, you know, there's, you know, the whole Chris Bava story and there's my sister and there's, uh, I mean, dude, this, we can, there's infinite stuff to mine. So, well, let's, you just, let's, you sail the ship and I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll pull up the sail.
1: Well, I think that the right place to start, and we talked about this a little bit in advance, is that there, there seems to me to be a thread through all of these different areas where you have plenty of experience and expertise and, and where we met and you know where our our relationship has grown which is in the intersection of the like pathology of civilization as primarily expressed in the drug war and deportation and the prison industrial complex you know that's the yeah that's where our relationship started was working on your documentary and then you know that despised underclasses yes the despised underclasses yes. and then also yeah. on top of that the art and promise you know or at least like self-declared promise of visionary culture and the global festival circuit which seems you know depending on how you look at it on the one end it's a release valve for this pathology you know it's a, it's a place for people to escape but on the other hand it's just a microcosm of that toxic society and all of the problems of it are carried into that space and then you've got the psychedelic healing and you know trauma recovery part of it you know your work down in Mexico with Iboga and you know while I have no personal experience with Iboga I've been thinking a lot about psychedelic healing and psychedelic harm reduction as Right. models that can inform a like a wider strategy or stance with respect to the pathological culture in general. And like looking at rapid yes. rapid change and people's difficulty adapting to these these accelerating successive waves of of you know the the need to level up on our techno- technical literacy or media literacy, not be exploited and abused by people with uh, you know, more knowledge of these things you know the program or be programmed part of it so i don't know i mean yes. y- you've you've got a you know a very twisty and multi-dimensional story but i mean i'm you can pick it up wherever you like really and talk about i guess probably why trauma is an important conversation in all of these areas and why why you know uh, healing trauma is something that you've decided to devote your work to and and all of that
0: cool yeah 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 that's a good place to start i mean um always best to kind of like uh, have a leading question so if you want to phrase that some way we,
1: <laughs> why does
0: we'll just why does scale.
1: healing from trauma matter to you charles
0: why does it matter yeah. well um I, I think that the dictum that exists that uh, you know you really only care about certain issues when they strike home, I think definitely plays significantly into the trauma discussion. So I didn't care about trauma or PTSD until I realized I had it. And I didn't realize I had it until my early 30s and here 's the thing, okay, so trauma is a very complex thing, and it 's a kind of a pioneering emerging field and there 's a lot of focus that 's been put on it lately, and I think that 's just absolutely smashing, like I am just really happy about that <laughs> um, because prior to that, it was pretty much this ghettoized phenomenon that was all wrapped around war heroes and and veterans. And, yeah, that is the single worst form of trauma, war trauma. Like, there's nothing that is worse than that. It's it's the pinnacle. And anyone who's experienced that and survived and managed to put a life together afterwards, as far as I'm concerned, knowing what I know now, that's a miracle. I look at my grandfather of the greatest generation, World War II veteran. Mm. He never spoke of his war experience. Never. Like, he didn't tell me anything until... Christmas of 2004 when he was 85 years old or some, some shit like that. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> my, gra- my, gra- my grandmother was still alive. Uh, she was in the early stages of Alzheimer's, which would eventually take her life uh, by 2011. And um, my grandfather remained sharp. He died at 96, and he b- died a sharp, brilliant, but very angry man because he was a working class son of an immigrant sicilian and he felt he was better he came from a better station in life and should have been more than just some working class guy and he was bitter about it his whole life and the only thing that made him feel good about himself and constantly reinforced and propped up his identity was his veteran status the fact that he was a decorated world war ii veteran he won the bronze star This is a narrative we just heard over and over again as kids. You know, he won the Bronze Star, he fought Mm in the war, and he was a prominent Catholic and member of the Knights of Columbus, which is a right-wing Catholic uh, secret society. no, which is ironic cuz my grandfather was a working class Sicilian son of an immigrant so technically in Chicago so technically speaking he was a democrat and he always voted democrat cuz that's what you did if you were a working class immigrant in those days <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he was always very much like of this very authoritarian you know like most descendants of the Roman empire my people are I mean I'm a, a we're mixed as Sicilians like I'm essentially you know mostly european like largely greek and Italian but I also have 20% North African in my genetics too so I'm technically black by any standard is this right? is this any a legal. 23
1: and me thing or how did you find that out
0: um it's a 23 and me thing it's also uh we did a my grandfather did a detailed lineage of the family history And my grandmother's family were peasants that were living in the highlands of central uh, Sicily. And they essentially their village had been conquered and reconquered and reconquered by every empire that crossed the Mediterranean for like a thousand years (laughs) that they had genes from everybody. Right. So I'm essentially a melting pot. Right. And I think that's why Sicilians have such high tempers and they're so explosive is they're just tired of people coming in and like, you know, mating with their women and, you know, <laughs> conquering their little island. Like, it makes them fucking crazy. It turns us all into little Joe Pesci's, right? So, uh, anyway, getting back to my grandfather, you know, this is not uh, a, an unfamiliar story for anyone who's, who had a, you know, greatest generation grandparent or right. parent. Right. They, right. they never talked about this. And so, you know, you look at it, you back up a little bit, and you look at it from the machinations of society, and you realize that this was the good war, you know? They call it the good war, the just war. This is the one war that America has leveraged its entire identity behind. And, you know, putting it all in context, you got to go back to the late 30s, what was going on? A uh, depression, a really bad one that had been going on for like 10 years. I mean, we're talking one third of the population out of work and uh, revolts going on everywhere led by organized labor. And uh, you had a, you know, very progressive, somewhat would argue socialist president in Franklin Delano Roosevelt that seemed, you know, impenetrable. He was like going on his fourth term, third term, fourth term by the late 30s and by the time the war came around. And um, he had changed America drastically. He had implemented, you know, government programs and all of this stuff. This is all like huge and, you know, new at this time. And. The whole world economy was falling to shreds and Europe was collapsing into war, which is it's always about trade. It's always about territory. And our whole thing was that we needed to maintain our supremacy in the Pacific. So we knew we had to fight Japan, but we couldn't start it. So we had to goad them into Pearl Harbor, which we did by fucking putting an embargo on them, cutting off their oil and, and poking at every single open wound they had until they snapped. You know, Japanese are incredibly brilliant, organized, and prideful people, and they're great warriors, and they're not going to take shit. You know, <laughs> so what happened? Was, you know, the the European thing was a whole different thing. So my grandfather avoided the real war, which is the Pacific War, and that was the most brutal like war of the modern era, dude. I can't imagine anything that has been worse than this island con- island hopping conquest. You know, where we had to one at a time root the Japanese out of these you know, like bunkers on these islands, like. People should watch this brilliant Terrence Malick film from 1998 called The Thin Red Line. It's Uh. one of the three best war movies ever made and it is a masterpiece and it is not a pro war movie trust me (laughs) and they they went there and it's got i mean an all-star cast it's got everybody who was everybody at the time because malik came out of retirement he was a master of the 70s you know and then he kind of vanished for a while had a nervous breakdown which we'll get back to later michael because that's a central theme in our story today The nervous
1: breakdown Uh, yeah yeah
0: nervous breakdown so there was this kind of trade-off like you know the america needed the war it needed the war to create this war economy which lifted us out of the depression as uh oliver stone uh imbues through this character that's based on fletcher prouty and jfk like he says the primary organizing principle for any society is within its war powers mm. and and it's true. You know, However you can organize a society, your real power comes to when you've got to go fight somebody else. That's when the power of government becomes apparent. And there was a kind of a trade-off. Like There was a, a historical anomaly, a statistical anomaly within the history of capitalism, which is that for a brief 50-odd year period, there was a flourishing middle class in the developed world, in the white Western world. So basically, Europe, America, Canada, and like Japan. Um, there was a middle class, a big one. And it was the largest generation that had ever been born on earth at that time. And so th- they changed the entire world because we essentially said, okay, listen, go fight this war, you know, go on rations for years, like women go into the workforce, everybody change everything. But the payoff will be when you get back, you're going to be heroes forever. You're going to have access to whatever money you need. You want to get a loan to go to school. You want to buy a house. You want to have a family. You're going to have it all. And they they kept their word. And so my grandfather's generation had everything. They had everything. And their kids, the baby boomers, had it all. <laughs> you know. But my grandfather's generation grew up in the Depression. They never believed that the government... Would ever be a lasting entity, much less you know that we should trust them. My grandfather never kept his money in a bank; he kept it under his mattress, literally. <laughs> because Don't blame he lived through bank philly.
1: Yeah, I mean, in a yeah, way, he, my partner's father please. is is uh, a part of an investment management firm, and you know he he made the point to me a while ago. You know, just to see it from the outside, he's like, "Man, I really feel." bad for you guys meaning my generation you know you came out of college right right at the you know during the 2008 collapse this engineered financial collapse and you know and like basically you are where you are now where you would have been 10 or 15 years ago had you been born at my time and so I think there's something we can put a pin in this but I think there's something really vital about this this economic cycle and the way that it engenders different attitudes about the, the the way that people trust or fail to trust, you know, with reason, their institutions. And I think yeah you know, that, that sense of that, that feeling of not being able to turn to a container for safety, I think, is a big part of this whole picture.
0: Wow. You nailed that right on the head. And I can wrap this up pretty good into that. Um You know, with my grandfather, so there was this payoff and he fights and he comes back and he has everything and you know, but he's still bitter because he's still working class. He never gets to be like bougie, but his kids get to be bougie. My mother was obsessed with being bougie because she was raised poor. And, you know, it became this guiding principle in her life, of the acquisition of wealth and materialism. OK, so that defined the baby boom generation. They were all about getting their stuff and getting theirs. They were a bunch of us. And I hate to say this because they get so pissed off when you say this shit. But it's like <laughs> at this point, they're in their 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s and they got to own it. But like they they were greedy and they sold out and they Caused the situation we're living in today by rampant consumerism and they know it they know it dude because you go to visit my mom she's 73 years old you know and there's no personality there there's just stuff you know mm. she's defined by what she acquires and my grandfather was defined by his role in service to his country as was his whole generation so cut to 2004 and i'm 34 years old at the time and I'm about to embark on a wild journey that takes me like to prison for a year. Right. This is all stuff in exile you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is actually something that was cut from the, the, the print version when I put that out. But, um, it was a scene that involved my grandfather and we're sitting around watching the sunset in Florida. You know, they had just relocated there because my grandmother had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. They were really old. They needed care and they moved in with my mom. And, uh, my grandfather's just sitting there staring at the sun. My grandmother's, you know, kind of like not really, you know, she's not really there. The tsunami's going on at this time, okay? So like for, an, for a mental picture, imagine my, grandfa- my grandmother sitting in front of the television watching these every five minute reports on the tsunami mm. and it, none of it penetrating. So every time she goes through the same emotional experience of being shocked and horrified at 200,000 people being washed away. And she's over and over all throughout this week. You know, this is she, we had to finally take her away from the TV and put her outside. So I'm sitting with her and my grandfather, and my grandfather is a very stoic man. He doesn't say much, and he's not he's not a hugger, if you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, and you know, he's uh, he's just sitting there, and then out of the blue, he goes. You know, I never told you why I got the Bronze Star. And I looked at him, kind of resentful, because, like, he never did tell me anything. And he expected me to go into the military and become a doctor and all this stuff, and I didn't fulfill his dreams, and I was, a, you know, an artist and a fucking junkie and all this shit. And he was, so he didn't like me very much. You know, I, it was a very great disappointment because I was the eldest grandson of a giant Sicilian clan, so I should have been the Don. And instead... You know, I was fucking Chuck. You know, I was Charles the fucking <laughs> lunatic. You know, whatever the hell I was, I was definitely not what my grandfather signed on for. And But he says, you know, I never told you this. Okay. And I said, I, I want to know, man. And he says, when we got to Germany, we were essentially routing out the Germans and just doing cleanup operations. All the fighting had essentially been done. Um, but our job was to make sure that once we got off the boat, Until we hit Berlin, we had rooted out every German we could find. We were in western Germany, and we came across a small platoon of Germans, uh, and we ended up taking control, taking prisoners, 17 German officers. And my commanding officer says to me, Lombardo, I want you to deliver these officers to the prison camp at X. Right, He says, but just bear in mind, uh, provisions are almost non-existent. Uh, It's cold. uh, And, you know, if something happens to them along the way, no one's going to lose any sleep over it. Mm. And my grandfather (laughs) understood exactly what that meant. And he took these 17 German officers into the woods and he shot them. He executed them summarily. (laughs) Pow! They gave him a bronze star. They gave him a little medal to pin on his chest for it. It was really cool. It was really cool. Uh, So, but this, my father, my grandfather, uh, to be fair, um, as far as he was concerned, he committed the ultimate fucking act for his government, for his way of life. And that cemented in him a couple of things. One was all of his feelings about the war were suddenly frozen inside him. There was no cultural mechanism for him to discuss any of this. Okay. They had severe war trauma. They had done, they had committed fucking, you know, uh, crimes against humanity. Like my grandfather should have been hauled up in front of Nuremberg. I'm sorry, but that's by the same standards that we executed Nazis. We did the same shit. See the thing is now that that generation's gone these stories are starting to come out but unfortunately they're being seized on by the fucking alt right and the, and the fascists first to try to rewrite the story of Hitler which is a jumbled mess anyway but man <laughs> that's you know like, you know that's just come on man like give me a break you know um It's, you know, it's like it, you know, nothing takes away from what the Third Reich did. Like, you know, as Eddie Izzard said, they were mass murdering fuckheads, you know, and there's really no other way to put it. Right. My grandfather, they, you know, his generation, the vets, they knew this. And in their minds, what they did was okay because they were liberating. They were fighting against these Nazi fucks or these Japanese. And in the Pacific War, it was brutal. It was like hand-to-hand combat on these tiny islands in the worst possible conditions. You watch the Ken Burns series on it, man. You cannot believe that human beings survived the whole thing, let alone that that's what we had to do to knock Japan and China out of the Pacific so that we could control shipping lanes right? <laughs> I mean, you start to think about what this was really all about and it was not about stopping fascism. I mean, sure, that was a, a fringe benefit, but this is about territories and empires and mm-hmm. about mobilizing your citizenship. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather, what have created was an angry man who like, got his medal and then that was about it and lived every year for Veterans Day where he could fucking bust that shit out and go march around with his Knights of Columbus sword. And You know, show everybody that he was a war hero, Um, but no one ever talked about it, and there was a tremendous level of domestic violence and abuse in that generation, and the baby boomers, huge driving force for them to form the counterculture and rebel against the older generation was this dynamic going on at home. So a lot of the baby boomers are really kind of emotionally stunted and underdeveloped because they grew up in these repressed households. And they, you know, you see it all over California here, Michael, like you, I live in San Francisco, dude, I can go outside start swinging a dead cat around and I'm going to hit at least four or five middle age to retirement age boomers that like... Right. You know, have got intractable, you know, psychological and emotional problems and all of these autoimmune disorders that they develop growing up in these like nervous households. And people flocked out here to get away from that. So you talk about the economics and, and what's it playing in your generation, my generation. How this plays out is a cascading effect, which is traumatic in each iteration and with each generation. So you've got the repressed trauma of the greatest generation in the war being funneled and taken out on the baby boomer generation the children and then the baby boomers and then going out and by the same morals and ethics and standards that their parents went and fought this great war and they became this world power which was democracy the rule of law yada 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 everything that we peddle and sell to people of being part of a citizen of a democracy and of a progressive nation all that shit got chucked out the window with Vietnam what see the thing that people really don't they forget is that the reason the music and the art and everything of the Vietnam era was so good was because it was so real
1: yeah america actually, was i said that on the night Trump of of Trump winning the election i, I was like well the next four years are gonna be great for art. It's like all you gotta do is, is, you know, squeeze that 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 uh, culture a little bit and it'll squeak, you know?
0: It will. It will. But the problem here, my friend, is that it's a progressive illness. Okay, (laughs) and the baby boomers, there was rage, man. Rock and roll was an expression of rage. The new Hollywood was an expression of rage between generations and the hypocrisy of the government and the military and Vietnam and the civil rights movement and everything. It was all disillusionment. And the perfect example is Kennedy in Vietnam. Like we lost our innocence in that generation. And so the music and the poetry and the art and the writing, it's all angry. It's all the, the screaming voice of disillusionment of a culture that was lied to of a scorned woman, you know? And so it's real, it's visceral. But then like the eighties come around and Reagan. And now what you have is my generation is growing up. You have generation X now we're the first generation born into high divorce rate epidemic really. We were known as latchkey kids. This was like a term that they invented because was it was those, new yeah. in American and it was new in American society to have parents that were divorced. Like divorce was not common, you know, in the 70s. It started and then you had like Kramer versus Kramer this movie with Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep that wins the fucking Oscar because it's a movie about divorce. By today's standards you watch it and you're like this is fucking stupid. This is every family. What are you talking about? But but back then it was it was new. And so you get my generation, and what we are growing up is, you know, they called us Generation X, and they said that we would never amount to anything. And they said that the best had already happened. They said that we were going to be the first generation that didn't do better than our parents. They were talking this shit about us when we were still, like, babies. We were a small generation born during the Vietnam War and the riots in America. So the technical... Uh, It's from the Kennedy assassination, so it's 1964 to 1981 with John Lennon's uh, assassination and Reagan taking power. That is the birth window for Gen X. That was the most turbulent, fucked up time in American history. So you went from 78 million baby boomers, 76 million baby boomers born after the war. To only about 17 to 22 million Gen Xers born during this window, and like the story of how I came here is is you know a perfect example. Like my parents couldn't conceive; everything was super stressed out. Nobody knew what was happening in the future. Uh, My mom ended up jacking herself up with all these, you know. Fertility drugs that were experimental at the time, and this is why I have a mutated brain, Michael, and why I have telekinetic powers and can manifest demons from the great
1: depths. I thought it was because my our, mom took a lot. I was going to say it's that they, they talk about <laughs> the acid breaking your chromosomes, that old fake news before yeah. it was fake news. Yeah. So,
0: <laughs> oh god that was we'll talk about acid mythology later because I've got a piece I'm working on about the whole myth of LSD and its creation and all of that because it is a myth and we will get to that um, so <laughs> so you know with with Gen Xers we started we were we grew up kind of like okay well fuck it like you know we're not going to like necessarily half of us you know went did what the parents did we went to you know professional school we went into the corporate world Half of them are living, half of my generation is living just like their parents did in some form or another, except they're going balder and fatter a lot earlier. And they're a lot more stressed out and they're all mortgaged out and it's all like different and they're, you know, they got old really fast. Like I saw my high school 20th reunion photograph. This was 10 years ago. (laughs) I saw the photograph of the people that went to the 20th reunion. I'm like, I look like a tribal burner. Okay. I look like I'm 23 years old. And like at the time, and these kids are like bald, fat and bags under their eyes, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're all in the financial industry, the legal industry, doctors, you know, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so with us we're a small generation you know the baby boomers held on to everything and they're still holding on to shit if you can believe it so my generation even though Obama technically was the first Gen X president like it, it, it was just him and the rest of the government was pretty much I mean like Paul Ryan I think is a Gen Xer you know like some of these young fucking dillweeds but that those are the ones that went and played the system. Then you got the people, the half of my, you know, the generation that are like, you know, nomadic artists, contract workers, you know, independent contractors, creative professionals, moving from here to there. Maybe we've been divorced three times. Maybe we've got kids or not. I don't. I've never been married, you know. But like, I represent the extreme end of my generation. But then we get your, you know, your generation, Michael. What, what year were you born, by the way? Eighty four specifically. Eighty four. Okay, so you're you're solidly a millennial, and uh, you were like two years before my like last two girlfriends. Like, but well ahead of like well ahead of uh, a large group of um, of millennials that swelled. You know, around the nineties. You know, they they you know around the nineties, like you had a big big birth swell. So millennials were a little different. They were raised by largely baby boomers. Now, my generation, Gen Xers, we were raised by a mixture of baby early baby boomers, which are very different from the later ones. You know, so my mom was born in 46. She's as different from somebody born in 1955 or 1960 as you can get. You know, she's, you know, they lived a totally different culture, but they're all still part of the baby boom generation. And then, and then prior to the baby boom generation was the silent generation. That was my dad's generation. So he was born before the war. My mom was before, born after. And we're kind of a mix. Your generation got raised largely by baby boomers. So all of the entitlement and all of the like material wealth of the baby boomer experience, plus... Huh. and here's where they kind of went wrong, all of the unmet dreams and expectations and everything, every boomer that didn't become a rock star, their kid was going to become a rock star. <laughs> and so the millennials were the millennials were raised telling their children that they could have and be anything that they wanted to be, at the same time that the government is getting involved in education with things like D.A.R.E. in a way that they'd never really done before. So the millennials become the first like truly programmed generation. Prior to that, We were programmed by television and the three major networks. We all believed the same things. We all had the same narrative. That was very convenient for running a country. Today, we don't have that. Today, everyone's got their own fucking narrative stream, you know? So what I think happened, Michael, is that through a progression of generations, the expectation for the good life and for one's involvement and engagement with uh, the civic life uh, changed. To, to this day, let's go to Facebook right now. Let's go to, like, Neil Goldsmith or some of our boomer friends that right out there are arguing, how do we change the government? How do we change gerrymanding? And I'm saying shit like, who gives a fuck? <laughs> like, who? why do you want to spend any time caring about that? It's never going to change. Like, don't you realize, like, we are in this time that the French called um, anomie, mm-hmm. A-N-O-M-I-E. And it it means that the time Mm -hmm. when all standards, all moral and ethical standards have fallen away, the corruption has revealed itself as naked, the emperor has no clothes, and everyone's sitting back going, fuck it yeah give me a fucking scooter. let's go ride
1: yeah you know uh Chris Ryan talks about this in tangentially speaking and that's that's heavy on my mind in the the context and framing of this whole thing because he spends a, a a good deal of his podcast talking about the book that he's working on civilized to death and about this tension, the conflict between the individual and the institution, you know, and how this is this like super organism of the institution has grown up and is, it's like if the host organism lived inside the parasite rather than the other way around. And wow. Uh, you know, and so you like, could call
0: that technically capitalism though, if you think about it.
1: Right. Right. And so, th- I mean, well this, this whole notion of the crisis of legitimacy and the, the decay of trust and confidence in not just our governments, but our religious institutions. You know, I yes. mean, this this whole conversation. You, you know, to the extent that we can draw a line between religion, government, and parenting, then you know, your your report on the the sort of you know complex ethical situation of the boomer parenting. It is part of that also of like realizing you know it waking up and realizing trauma. that yeah that there was like oh these people didn't know what they were doing and you know it's like oh okay yeah. they were human too my
0: parents were yeah. very flawed people but they they approached life with a moral authority especially my mother that i did not realize until i was in my mid-40s was complete bullshit it was an act and my mother was actually very mentally ill that she has borderline personality disorder. She's nuttier than a fruitcake, man. And her entire life, her entire reality was a fiction that she had crafted as part of her particular version of borderline, which is called the Queen Complex. And they create this whole, like, mythology of who they are, what they came from. They have these, like, Dickensian trials in their childhood that justify all of their behaviors in their adulthood. And it's this whole thing, right? you know you asked me about trauma like here's how trauma shifts across the generations you got it all repressed in my grandfather's generation it's taken out on my mother's generation they're a very acting out generation they hit you know and then so they're not there because they're all into their own thing and so my generation suffers because we don't have present parents or stable family environments and then by the time you get to the millennials you flip the script and suddenly you've got the all of these like family environments but the narrative going on is you know well you know you're gonna be able to do whatever you want and then all of a sudden your generation comes into the job market and there's no fucking jobs and they're moving home to live with their parents and they're supposed to be fucking ballers with bmws and entrepreneurs and social fucking networkers and all this shit and all your generations running around trying to style themselves as entrepreneurs but they're living on other people's couches you know (laughs) and it's like it's this it's this delusional mentality where like they feel like if they don't front like this that they're going to be perceived as failures i understand what this is like as a, a gen x was a very creative generation we a lot of really good art and music and film was created by my generation we we redefined hollywood we redefined the music industry i'm not saying for the better uh with everything but um I'll stand behind my generation with film any day, you know. I'm not so sure we did so great with music, because uh, I I still think the grunge thing was just way played out. But that's a whole nother tangent. Then again, '99 uh, was like a
1: golden year of musical. Golden releases.
0: year for like for what? Master P and like you know Rage Against the Machine. I mean, it was come on, give me a break. <laughs> well, I
1: mean, '99, 2000, you had you know the Flaming Lips put out Soft Bullet and Radiohead put out Kid A.
0: Yeah you know, it, was, it
1: was that that they they caught the wave of that that millennial dread and anxiety and I and again like and I they really burnt
0: down Woodstock 99. Oh uh, well let's, not, let's gro- not
1: talk about Woodstock it's 99
0: Which was awesome. That was the best thing that 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 we did. That was my generation. We were just like, "Fuck this shit!" Fifteen dollars for a fucking bottle of water? Are you kidding me? Like, yes, and you get a free rectal exam with that too. What know? is this,
1: Austin City so, Limits? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, so what ended up happening, you know, is like, you know, my, my generation is is an agglomeration of traumas all related around dysfunctional, absentee family environments. The millennials have a whole uh, other set of psychological and emotional. Trauma wrapped around unfulfilled expectations of their generation because these kids were told they were going to change the world. My ex-girlfriend was literally raised to, and she was told by people that she was a chosen person and that she was destined to change the world, to save it perhaps. You know, she was shuttled between like, you know, Tibetan healers and South American ayahuasqueros and like held up like, look, this is she will change the world. Can you imagine the pressure? Did that person felt, that she felt? Yes,
1: actually, because my friend's parents told us the same thing growing up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think I'm so unique sometimes, and then I realize I'm just telling everybody.
1: It was. It was was this thing of, talk about the cycle of abuse. It was like, it's up to you guys now. You know, it's like, don't tell us. Don't tell a, a, a teenager that. You know, it's...
0: Well, well, here's, you know, you had you guys had that, which is an intense psychological pressure. What we had was the last remnants of the old family culture. And this was when divorce was a new thing, and it was really, really traumatic to families. It ripped families apart. Like, we were not used to, like, the baby mama phenomenon had not even hit yet. This was big deals when families broke up. And there was still a lot of violence in homes. It was still okay to smack your kids around when I was growing up. My mother was extremely violent, as was her father, as was his father. And a lineage of extreme domestic violence was part of my generation. So all of us are all kind of developmentally fucked up in some way because of this, especially if we went through this experience. And the baby boomers were big babies about their divorces and their affairs and their midlife crises. And they were just pathological attention whores and they were unable because they were raised to believe that everything was about them and that they had all the power. That You talk to a baby boomer today, they will tell you if they were involved in the counterculture, they will actually say we ended the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much you argue with them and tell them that they had absolutely nothing to do with the Vietnam War ending, they, are, they will not fucking hear it. And what I found when I was in political organizing, when I was working for the Green Party and all of this, and I was working with baby boomers actively trying to kick George Bush out of office and things like this, is they would never believe anything that questioned the integrity of the election system, for example. Like in 2000 and 2004, there was almost identical voter fraud that allowed George Bush to win two elections, essentially steal both of them. There was court cases about this. My party and the Libertarian Party and the Progressive Democrats filed suit. We had congressional hearings. I mean, all this shit was real. Like, it actually happened. Uh, It wasn't a bunch of people on the Internet having, like, a conspiracy. Like, there was a paper trail, okay? We could prove it we they they conclusively proved that florida stole the 2000 election we conclusively proved that ohio stole the 2004 didn't matter and not only that not only did it not matter but no one in the baby boom generation in the democratic green or libertarian parties would actually believe it none of them would actually say oh my god you're right <laughs> they stole the election because what that meant to them was it called the whole system into question. And when you call the whole system into question, that is a much larger conversation than, no, your other party is just the problem. It's just those people, those people. But, you know, just recently, uh, there's been a lot of press on the fact that And we have members of our own government coming out and saying this. We are at the most divided politically that we have ever been. At the height of the Vietnam War, the Democrat and Republican parties had a lot of crossover. People had a lot of crossover in their voting, and they all worked together for the common American thing. And now that ain't happening. Now we've got two parties, two cultures at war with each other. It is an early form of civil war. And the forces that are at play that are in power right now are fascist forces. They are far right-wing forces. We are back to where the world was in the late 20s and 30s. You know, it's not as dramatic. There's much more information. Fascism is much more clever now. It cloaks itself in reality TV and business suits and all kinds of stuff. But it's fascism. You know, when you... Look through it, it all looks the same. And the problem is, is that a guy like me, talking on a podcast, going on about fascism, just sounds like every other asshole out there, railing about politics, everyone's like, ugh dude when are you going to talk about psychedelic drugs bro because that shit is fun and i don't blame him for saying that because this shit's a drag but like okay if we're going to have a two hour party here let's take a half an hour and at least talk about how we're going to clean up the party right plus
1: plus you can't i mean if you if you're trying to get into tripping and you're unwilling to have the bad trip then you're not gonna last very long in there I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) I think it's really, you know, as far as psychedelic healing is concerned, you've got to go through hell to get there. And you know that better than anybody I I know, probably.
0: Well, I mean, I definitely, like, throw my hat in for the Lifetime Oscar with that one. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I would say... That you hit it right on the head is that the it's a great metaphor to extend to healing and trauma. See, here's the thing. So we got this culture, and they're all we're all told and programmed and reinforced at every turn, and given a rat pellet every time we fucking you know wrinkle our eyes about this and wrinkle our little nose. Is that you know it's all about the market. Uh, it's all about you can do whatever you want, create whatever you want, borrow money. This it's like a big thing it's a big scam and when people stop believing it we act in all kinds of ways but we're still programmed in this system this you can have it all system for immediate gratification and for an exchange or transactional perspective on it all so what we want is, okay, I have a problem, I have trauma, I need to fix it right now. So all day long, I'm talking to people on the phone, fielding intake calls for Ibogaine Institute, you know, where people come to treat addiction and trauma with plant medicine. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's kind of ironic too, because people are calling in largely a state of desperation, and they really need our help, and they're desperate, they don't know what else to do. But once you start talking about money... The capitalist programming pops on. It doesn't matter how much help they need or how desperate they are. They suddenly want to get their money's worth. They want guarantees. They want to know if they get their money back, if it doesn't work. (laughs) And I'm sitting here going, like, what, 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 What? really? Folks, 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 you're getting it wrong here. Hold on. Let's pause the video for a second. Okay, so... (laughs) If you are a 40-year-old man and you come from a developmentally, uh, you know, um, challenged or otherwise, um, you know, abused environment you know uh, if you have developmental disabilities if you've got you know defiant personality disorder borderline if you've got you know severe emotional disturbance bipolar uh, but the consequences of bipolar are not just having it not having it alone is not a bad thing it's long term consequences all these things and you finally had enough and you decide you want to change yourself what What is leading you to think that you can go pull something off the shelf and you're going to be fixed like that? But everybody, I'm sorry, I, I don't care what anyone says right now. This is what they think and this is what they expect. And it's because that's what society expects. Oh, so you're sick, you've got drug addiction? Okay, here, go fix yourself. And everything in the traditional world about drug addiction and trauma is about getting people back to normal. But their approach to getting people back to normal is to slam shut, nail shut, seal shut, whatever the hell it's got to do. Tamp down, suppress, smother, otherwise natural uh reactions that are severe and scary, but natural. Yeah. Addiction has been, you know, addiction has been treated like its own standalone illness for, you know, Officially, within like government circles and and health, like uh, you know, medical circles, for you know about roughly seventy years, Uh, the the concept was introduced in the late, 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 late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. That addiction wasn't a moral failing; you weren't like a bad person if you were a drunk. You had a illness. It took almost fifty years or so for the idea to take hold. But then you ran into institutional bureaucracy and the ossification of knowledge in a bureaucracy and how things grind to a soul-crushing halt because everybody needs to get on the same page in a democracy and in a system like this. So addiction science is progressing at light speed, but addiction understanding and comprehension is progressing like Yertle the Turtle. And uh, what we know now is that it isn't a disease. It's, it's the government lists it, NIDA lists it as a chronic progressive brain disease. Okay, we found out that, yes, it is partially that. But it is neither chronic, nor is it progressive. And you have to put an asterisk on progressive. Okay, what we found out is addiction is three things. Addiction is a learned behavior more than anything else. So if you start taking drugs and get a good positive reaction from it, your brain is going to love that. Your brain lo- you know this, Michael. The brain loves positive stimuli. It loves strokies, it loves feel-goods. So whatever it feels best to it, it is this like amazing fucking 3D printer that just can create anything and it writes super highways so that the drug can travel between <laughs> the entrance the intake point and the center of the pleasure zone in the fastest and most comfortable way. It's like this giant Uber service with a super pimped out highway. And the brain says, Look what I built, you know? And the brain's proud of it. The brain says, Look at man, you have now got a maximized pleasure highway. Isn't that what you wanted? And society's going, Oh my God, brain, what did you do? And brain's going, I did exactly what I was designed to do. Oh, yeah. And by the way, this guy went through a whole bunch of really awful stuff too, and he's really hurting and he's uh, self medicating. Didn't you know that too? So the brain knows exactly what it's doing. The brain's doing what it's programmed to do. The brain is programmed to alter its state of consciousness regularly. Ronald Siegel and other like top researchers would argue that this is our fourth primal drive, you know, intoxication, Mm -hmm. but also. A being in pain will will medicate that pain. Animals will eat certain foods. Uh, humans will drink or take, you know, opium or whatever it is. We've found ways to ameliorate our suffering. And emotional suffering is a particularly human condition. And animals don't need to, like, hit the bottle because animals don't suffer guilt. But humans do, right? <laughs> Can you imagine a fucking bunny hitting a, like, bottle of, you know... <laughs> Bullet whiskey, <laughs> which is really good whiskey, by the way, or so I hear. Uh, I, I don't drink, well, but it's, um, the,
1: it's the Robert Sapolsky <laughs> thing. The zebras don't get ulcers, you know that. We zebras eat. do not get ulcers. Yeah.
0: But what a zebra will do is if a zebra is running along with a bunch of other zebras and all of a sudden this fucking lion shows up, zebra is going to shit itself and take off at high speed as adrenaline floods into its system. And it's going to run possibly until its heart stops. But let's say before that happens, it manages to snap out of it and recognize that the threat has gone away then the zebra will slow down and then the zebra will eventually go off under this tree and him and his buddies will shake for a few minutes and then they'll just kind of mosey on and start eating some grass and that's the stress cycle you know there is excitement there's fight flight or freeze and then there is resolution or shake it off Um, but that's in the animal kingdom in the human kingdom we don't have that We don't shake it off. We don't have any mechanism to shake it off. So we lock it in somatically. We get all that energy that courses through us like adrenaline, you know, which fries our system. Imagine a house and and an electrical system in a house and imagine hooking it up to a 220 volt when it's wired for 110. Imagine what's going to happen. You're going to blow every circuit in the house. That's what happens with trauma, with, with PTSD. You blow every circuit in the house. And it remains fried. You have to pull that out and you have to replace it with a a new circuitry, okay? And until that's done, the person suffers post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a total misfiring of their nervous system because the places where the nerve impulses went have now been fried. And so it's like Rogue One when they like hit the ship, you know, and it's like (laughs) empty space, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs)
1: Talk about a talk about They're a film in which you, you see the institutions, uh, you know, taking advantage of individual human beings. You you really get a sense for, yes. you know, how the these you know the, the people that are th- are throwing themselves into one side or another of these ideological conflicts, and the the machine is just chewing them up. So that's actually that's yeah, a re- resonant example.
0: Yes, and, and, and there's also another wonderful metaphor in this idea of the whole you know, tension of the film. The whole tension of the film is based around them trying to get a message out. They just need to fucking broadcast a message from point A to point B. And there's all these challenges in the way that are preventing them from broadcasting the message. That's what's going on with PTSD. Your body is reacting to a stimulated environment, and it's also in a heightened sense of, uh, of uh, arousal. So, you know, people are on high alert, their blood pressure, and their heart rate is up, their oxygen intake is up, hyperventilation becomes problems, things of panic, anxiety, all this stuff. And then it gets frozen in them, right? We're finding out now that through things like, you know, like Bessel Vandercock, who is a professor at at my alma mater, Boston University, a fine Fine academic institution, I should say. And I'm very proud to be a be an alumnus. I love my school. I really did. It was a great place. BU Medical School was pretty tight. And Vanderkock's like the guy. He's the man. He's like the Stanley Kubrick of trauma, you know? And he wrote this book called The Body Knows the Score. And it's an, it's kind of like an like a little bit of an anachronism, you know. You know, hey, I know the score, kid. You know, and it's like, okay, well, maybe they could have chosen a little bit different. But then it's like you think about it in literal terms, and what he's talking about, there is a kind of a score. There's like a replenishment and draining. You know, scorecard in the body and trauma is and and adrenaline and cortisol, stress hormone, are the like three most toxic things that can happen to the body. It just erodes shit. So people subjected to long term trauma, like a war zone, like trench warfare for two years, will lose their minds. I mean, literally, they will not be able to function anymore. And this is known as the nervous breakdown. And this was just a kind of a cultural aphorism or idiom or this idea to me for most of my life even even as my father went through one in his forties himself, it was always just this idea or this kind of like oh it 's this clever metaphor for like when you just can't fucking hack it and I was very um, I was very tough and, and I lacked a lot of compassion about it because, you know, my mom was not a hugger. My mother was kind of like a rattlesnake with false eyelashes and high heels, you know, <laughs> and you, you just you just didn't want to get close. You definitely didn't want to pick it up and hug it, you know. Um So you know, I was not like a sensitive guy. I was not like a hugger. And I was in Chicago. a rough town, and like you know, it's it's a different world, you know. And my dad was a sensitive dude. My dad's a sweetheart. He's a really, really, really awesome guy. Very loving man. And he was he was suffering severe trauma from living with a borderline wife, who was fucking mean as a snake. And, you know, God, God bless my mother. Like she's had her trials and she's got excuses and and valid reasons for why she is the way she is. But it does not take away from the fact that living with a borderline is one of the most difficult things a human being can do. And it really messes up everybody. You know, you just look at my nuclear family. My father had a nervous breakdown in the 40s. Parents divorced. My father's never recovered. He's basically shell shocked for life. My sister committed suicide. I'm a, I'm like Sid Vicious. I'm like a magnificent disaster. I have purpose, but I'm not entirely sure what it is at this point, right? And then there's my younger brother, who is like this, you know, financial douche, and uh, he's, you know, he's like a little Mussolini, and he's like, uh, you know, a, a replicant of my mother and my grandfather, an authoritarian, you know, one of those "my house, my rules" type people. Uh, no no discussion but pure like you know dictatorial control of everything control freak i mean he he turned out just like the you know he it's like he was given the choice like choose the dark side and he did he's like i can't fight this i got to go sith you know go sith or go sith or go home right and so much of my family like went sith they like they went bad you know i mean it, it it's hard because you know my mom's family is all sicilians and most of them are mob and and my dad's family was respectable norwegians that were political gangsters like my great grandfather was a ward boss in chicago he's head of the republican party like g- political gangsters in chicago are pretty scary they're pretty much the same thing you know it's it was an ethnic enclave and it was war during the 20th century in that city so you know we come out of this lineage and and but we don't even realize that it's there like i didn't know that i came from a alcoholic family let alone like one that had legacy trauma uh until i was you know an adult (laughs) when i hung out with my jewish friends from boston university for the first time in my freshman year and i went to like new york like long island and stuff and none of them drank like i thought the first thing you do when you're at the airport is you get a drink and then you get one when you get off the plane and then okay well we got to go have a drink before dinner and they're like no okay no we don't we don't really we don't really do that what you don't drink What are you a communist? Like what the hell? You know? It didn't compute. And so I think this by extension is a metaphor for like how people are really unaware of like the level of dysfunction or trauma or addiction or whatever that's going on in their lives. There's a lot of people that have really serious substance abuse problems and don't see it or would never believe it because they don't see it as harmful.
1: Well there's the boundary the boundary issue. You talk about the trauma of living with a borderline personality and when yes. when i hear this larger issue of the trauma of living in a post-industrial civilization you know and i think i think i mean this you can take this all the way Very back similar. to the you know the industrialization of war in world war 1 and and the emergence of shell shock as an idea literally you know literally coming home to us from these like weeks long bombardment campaigns that people had to live through and then you, you scale that forward into the internet age. And what uh, Douglas Rushkoff calls fractal noia, which is when news from all over the world arrives at you simultaneously, you simultaneously, and we're being, yeah, we're being bombarded by information in the same way that they were being bombarded by enemy shells. And it's because in some sense, you know, if you want to, if you want to get like mystical about it and talk about us building a global brain then that global brain hasn't hasn't really like managed to properly erect its like healthy internal partitions you know yes. it's, it's either putting up it's either talking about putting up a border wall or it's it's uh, <laughs> engaged in like flagrant and irresponsible polyamory or whatever the fuck it is like I feel like all of us right now are having our ordinary ego boundaries chipped away at and and eroded by the media environment in ways that are extremely problematic and it does actually resemble i think a lot a you know an issue of intense swings and you know you 're the hero you 're the villain this this bizarre sort of shit that people living with borderline individuals have to yeah. have to deal with yeah. and and so yeah it's, it's in a way you know i see that 's again that 's where the uh, the psychedelic healing metaphor seems to come in because a lot of the the potential uh, emotional difficulty of that type of experience is because you've lost <clears throat> you've lost the wall to lean on you know and like it's there's there are issues yeah. of like where you know where do i where do my problems stop and your problems begin and it's just getting yes. it's getting trickier and trickier as we in a way and it's be- in a way it's because of these insights these new, these new developments that we've made when you talk about like Traditionally, we treat addiction as a disease of the individual, rather than a symptom of this larger systemic problem. And, yes. and I think that you know it's it's in line with that. And you know you can carry that into I mean I think even into like violent crime and the possibility of treating uh, you know violent criminal behavior as a you know a neurological condition. In a similar way to that, that like Portugal, for example, treats addiction as a health issue rather than as a as a criminal issue. But at any rate, that's that's a whole. Yeah,
0: just, but the, well, I mean, just as a quick side note, and then and then I I have I have lots to 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 respond there yeah. uh, with. Um, Portugal doesn't. I mean, people have like you know created a kind of a hagiographic portrait of what's going on in Portugal just because they were the pioneers. But I spent a lot of time in Portugal, and Michael, you've been there too, you know. Um, And Portugal is a a still very much uh, caught in the remnants of its authoritarian, dictatorial past. When the, when the, the Salazar dictatorship ruled for like forty some years, um, the police are not friendly in uh, in in Portugal. They will still roust you and arrest you, and you'll go through all the same harassment. Except in certain portions of like Lisbon or Porto, where there's certain parks where people go to smoke the spliffs together as a social thing. Uh, they never really like bothered that. But try being a North African hash dealer on the street in Portugal and see what you're treated like. Mm. You're not going to get any breaks. You're going to get treated just like a black dude in America trying to peddle something on the corner. And it's always the poor Africans now that are that are schlepping everything as far north as Amsterdam. Every time I went to Amsterdam for four years, there were Nigerians on the street peddling cocaine. Like th- That never happened in Amsterdam. Amsterdam is where you went to get away from that shit, man. <laughs> like, you, went to some really, you went to go have some really good weed and sit in a coffee shop and have civilized conversation listening to good music and chilling the fuck out you know you're not supposed to be getting gacked up Amsterdam's very mellow like the people are really stuck up the Dutch are like not friendly but they're proud people and they have a civilization to be proud of and they don't go down for that shit but now it's everywhere anyway okay so it's like this I had uh, this writing professor and at BU um the guy who really shaped so much of like how I became a writer, even though I didn't like him very much. But man, he had such a huge influence on me. And I'm like, I was a spoiled kid, dude. While I was at BU, uh, Saul Bellow, Derek Walcott, uh, Robert Pinsky, um, Toni Morrison, Elie Wiesel, all Nobel laureates were all teaching there all of them like i had all these nobel prize in literature winning professors around me and i was like i mean talk about a kid being overwhelmed when you want to be a writer and the best that has ever lived or like surrounding you in your in your english department you know george higgins wasn't that guy george higgins was a crime novelist he used to be a prosecutor a d.a in uh in boston and so uh he had a really thick fucking accent right and uh you know, he was amazing at dialogue, man. The guy could write. There's this great Brad Pitt movie called Killing Them Softly that came out about four years ago. And it's based on one of George's books, uh, Coogan's Bluff. And it's really, really good. The man knew dialogue and he knew a storytelling. And I was this pretentious fucker used to like get into like Camus and Kafka and wanted to write all of this like surrealistic fiction and all this shit. I wasn't good enough yet to do that. So I was really pret- pretentious and george couldn't stand it because george liked to write narrative man he just got to the point and write wrote story and at one point i'm reading something and it like he's literally laughing out loud in class it's so bad and it really was that bad it was pretentious dribble but i'm like all proud of myself in my like tweed coat and jeans and boots and shit and thinking i'm like joe writer and higgins just stops and like like higgins was like 70 years old he like smoked three packs of Marlboro Reds a day and had the patch on and chewed nicotine gum at the same time. And like, he had that like deep rattled cough that you imagine was this big lump of black shit that you always want people to like cough out of their lungs, but they never really get out. Like that was like like how he talked and how he sounded like he sounded like a cigarette that had come to life, you know? And, And, and he would, he just stopped in the middle. He's cracking up. And he says, dude, he says, I got a heart condition and I'm a smoker. You're going to kill me if you keep doing this. He's like, just stop. And he says, he says, Shaw, the problem with your writing is that you have no true north. Mm. We don't know where the fuck we are. And we don't know where the fuck we're headed. And the first thing you got to do with any story is to orient your people. Okay, so let's leap out into the cultural story. We are in a time of anomie, and we are in a time where we are unrooted. We are rudderless. We have no true north. We're in uncharted territories. You say, it was very clever, the stuff that you said and that Rushkoff says. Uh, it's all very like funny, intellectual stuff about what's the brain doing, but what what at its heart what you guys are doing, though, is simply just anthropomorphizing uh, a, a tool, a part of our, of our body, an interconnected body that can't operate on its own. And if we look at it empirically, like scientists, and you're much better at this than me, but correct me if I'm wrong in any of my methodology here, but if we look at it empirically, the, the brain is, is actually doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's, it's responding perfectly. The problem is, is we don't know how to quantify it. So what we do is we put this giant headline in like, you know, the Atlantic Monthly or Vanity Fair or Time or the New York Times, and it says, smartphones are killing your children's brain or you know severe cognitive disorders found in children connected to modern internet technology or blah 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 and what is happening is that our brains are like you said being bombarded like the trenches with everything information now it's information warfare it's attention warfare Everything in the world now is fighting to get our attention. We Our senses are being besieged in a way that they never had before. And the brain is doing exactly what it was designed to do. It is responding. It is reacting and it is adapting. So it says, okay, well, I guess we don't need all of this like memory and recall and stuff like that. And I guess... We don't really need to link the two hemispheres for all this shit anymore. So I'm just going to cut this connection and clear this drawer out. And all of a sudden people can't, their recall or their linear functions are all fucked up. And they're like, what? Wait, And they can't carry a long thought or, or they have attention problems. And the brain's going, what do you want from me? All you're throwing at me is this short, crazy, rapid, disjointed shit. I'm giving you exactly what you want. And you're getting upset. And the people are saying, no, 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 no. I want to be the old way, and I want to have, and I want to be the new way too. And that, that doesn't work. So, the brain is doing what it's supposed to be doing. We don't understand it. There's a wonderful, wonderful book called The Biology of Desire. It's by a doctor named Mark Levin, I believe. And it's all about the neurology, neurophysiology of the brain. And he's just, he's like, dude, you guys have no idea how perfect the brain is, how strong it is, how it is doing all, at all times it is doing exactly what it was designed to do and it's doing it perfectly and nothing has ever replicated it. Give it a break. And he's saying we need to redefine our understanding of what the brain is doing. So all this stuff that we classify as mental illness and addiction and weakness and dysfunction, it's not, man. It's the brain doing exactly what it's doing. It is responding to what? A totally fucked up environment. A a world that doesn't make sense. Bombs, artillery of today, is cognitive dissonance. Mm. Okay? You drop a cognitive dissonance bomb on a population like 9-11 or like the Trump election or, you know, any of a million other things that don't add up in the logical, rational senses but are being peddled by the propaganda or the cultural narrative voice or engine, and you're going to have these explosions, really cool chick i met uh i'm sorry you can't say that anymore that's inappropriate a really excellent woman goddess uh really cool lady named ertha harris that i met yeah through yeah i met her through daniel yeah i met her through daniel pinchbeck at burning man 2007 we all camped together at entheon that was a fun year uh Ertha had this whole like th- articulation of a theory that she called consciousness pops. Did she ever tell you about that stuff? No. no. Okay, so, yeah, it was really cool. So so she would say that basically like what is what is the name? There's a name for the actual phenomenon that's happening where knowledge is doubling at, or or growing at an exponential rate now. There it's it's called a, a certain phenomenon. Are you familiar with what the name of that
1: is? Uh, Michael. the doubling of knowledge. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's got a specific
0: name, and it's factoring into the whole arguments about singularity and well, all of that There's stuff, Moore's right? law,
1: which is about processor speed, but it's related to that. But it's not. It's not that. It's
0: related to yeah. that. So it's, it's the human version of Moore's law. So we are adapting, and the world is changing around us so fast now, and we are plugged into that change in real time that. We are struggling to understand how to adapt to it, you know, and as this is happening, it creates massive cognitive dissonance because we have access to the information and we're we're given it and, and it does not match up with what our cultural narrative is. And so we're going, but wait, hold on. And the consciousness pop is like when we double or exponentially, you know, multiply this base that we're operating from, this consciousness pool, and it bubbles or pops into a whole nother bubble. It, whatever was in the first bubble just is there's too much pressure, it pops, but the pop is is like the universe or a big bang, it's an expansion. And so the new bubble is a larger, more powerful, more faster expanding bubble of consciousness. And that we keep popping, popping, popping until, you know, there's nothing more feeding the reaction. And what we are in in now is a rapid boil. There's a lot of popping going on, (laughs) and we're trying to follow it. And it is really disorienting, really confusing. And the technology that we've become wed to has actually made us less articulate, less less functional cognitively, less able to process, less able to speak, solve problems, how many people, man out there, who's ever listening, be honest with us. Raise your hand. <laughs> we'll <Won't laughs>
1: <If> you, <laughs> count this through the webcam. You just <laughs> raise your
0: hand digitally somehow. Send us a ping. Give us, you know, give us a cookie and let us know if you have lost your ability to navigate without your phone. Because I'm telling you, even people in my generation, we were raised with maps (laughs) and directions and street grids. And we knew how to get around based on this very simple system called cartography. (laughs) Right? Well, it was a lot simpler than it sounds, but we've lost it as an art. Nobody can get anywhere without their phones anymore, you know? So um, this is all tied into psychedelic therapy. This is all tied into the healing thing because we're still talking about the brain and we're talking about influencing the brain so if you've got a brain that is all out of whack because all the stimuli it's getting it is telling it to adapt in one direction but we don't know what that direction means yet we're confused and we have a very steep learning curve that we have yet to scale what we end up doing with all of that. Um, is a lot of collapsing, a lot of anger, a lot of, like, chaos, okay? So in the midst of all of this, like, we realize that the old ways of treating stuff like addiction or trauma just simply don't work. You can't take a lot of pills. <clears throat> if somebody is – is if their brain is to the point where they have a um, – Learned disease like addiction, which means that their brain is very active and loves to like write uh, superhighways and neural pathways in order to keep that pleasure going. If you have that type of brain, the worst thing to do is to take that person, remove them from society and lock them in a drab quasi-medical environment for 30 to 90 days where they sit around and do nothing except every once in a while talk about what they're going through. That's how they treat addiction these days. Oh, and go to meetings. That's ridiculous, man. I mean, that's basically like saying go to the medicine man and have him shake some bones at you. Okay? Um, And the thing is, yes, like it's all predicated on this idea of cognitive and cognitive processing therapy, which is talk therapy. And it's also, uh, you know, uh, uh, prefaced on the idea of group therapy. Okay, we get that. People need each other. Healing her, uh, happens through connection. Gabor Maté, Bruce Alexander, they'll all say, healing is connection. Hmm. The opposite of, you know, the opposite of connection is isolation. And isolation is where addiction and trauma thrive. So, <clears throat> we have run up against the wall of the institutional availability of treatments, the uh, institutionally sanctioned shit—the stuff that insurance companies and hospitals will pay for or provide—that shit doesn't work. The stats on addiction are abysmal. Under the current dominant system, something like half go back to using within a year, and ninety percent go back within five years. Ninety percent over five years—that is—that is enough in the corporate world to retire any product. But that model is still going strong because of institutional bureaucracy and the ossification of knowledge shit doesn't progress once it gets acknowledged that's the the way they want it to stay because if they have to change it then they have to change the whole system and it'll take just as long to change it this is part a big strong argument for why big societies and big democracies like ours just simply don't work you know it's one argument so in the, uh, so the Buckminster Fuller idea of if the dominant system doesn't serve you, create an alternate system and people will eventually come to it. That's exactly what happened with psychedelic therapy, particularly the Ibogaine. The story of Ibogaine is a story of a bunch of fucking lunatic outlaws, uh, hippies, that back in the – starting in the early 60s with Howard Lotsoff and his crew and, and then extending to the hippies, Dana Beale, then Richie Taub, and then ultimately Dimitri, Sarah Glatt, and all of these people – this becomes an, an underground, an outlaw underground that eventually developed an entire clinical apparatus. Uh, Tom Kingsley Brown does amazing work on how they're charting the uh, cosmology of uh, IBGAM providers now and showing that in a period of five years, uh, we went from eight clinics to like 413 across the world, or some shit like that. I think I'm exaggerating with the 413 thing, but we'll just call it a rhetorical flourish so that everybody understands there's a lot more today than there was back then, right? Um, It was an outlaw system. They had to go under the radar. The government didn't want to hear about it. They had to do their treatments and detoxes underground in hotel rooms and apartments. And uh, Ibogaine remained a Schedule I drug. Same with LSD, ayahuasca, DMT, mushrooms, all of these things, schedule one, schedule one, schedule one, no medicinal value, no therapeutic benefit, horseshit, horseshit, horseshit. Anyone who uh, can claim any bona fides as being a psychonaut understands the history and understands in the early days of the late 50s and early 60s, there was a lot of experimentation on treating illness and addiction and depression and stuff with this stuff. And then it all got shut down. This is a story we all know. This is a common story. So now here we are on the end of like – figuring out how to solve this one problem, and we've come to find that like, wow, plant medicine, and theogenics really work effectively on addictions and traumas and other mental disorders like these, particularly those that involve grieving and trauma and suffering and pain. And they have this added benefit of giving people these powerful spiritual experiences that become transformative, and we see more than any other type of treatment, life-changing miracles literally happen in front of your face. I can tell you uh, stories, uh, if you like, of what it's like to watch someone come into an Ibogaine clinic on day one of a 30 day stay, strung out, pale, sweaty, pukey, like irritable, withdrawn, morose, depressed, hopeless, and watch that person walk out 30 days later with color in their face, spring in their stride, a smile, a totally different perspective on life, who they are. They're not cured. They just have realized that life is so much more vast and complex than they than they imagine. A whole another fold to the box was opened up to them through this entheogenic experience, and they got an added benefit of detoxing their body from the drugs. <clears throat> so with the brain, we found that we can rewrite shit. Bessel van der Koch says there's this thing called neuroplasticity. It's a whole thing about how the brain repairs itself. And what it essentially means is that the brain has to has the ability to end a negative association, which is a memory, which is a hard wire or a right to the hard drive. Okay, that's all etching. So we etch a me- memory. We etch that that information, that data. It's all contextualized by our emotional experience when it happened. So if it was a traumatic experience, it's more likely to burn itself into our long-term memory. And because it burns itself through a traumatic experience, we have flashbacks for a while, because it just reactivates and reactivates and reactivates. And then over time, it's like everything that we, you know, know is all contextualized through, you know, this trauma experience. So with neuroplasticity, we have to learn how to have different experiences of the same things, and this is kind of like uh, what they call a, um, prolonged exposure therapy, as uh, kind of a it's one of the like mechanical and medical ways of going about this, and it's a very kind of official and procedural. But with prolonged exposure, if you're in a car wreck and you have severe PTSD around a car wreck, you. Um, are going to gradually be reacclimated to the idea of going and riding in a car and then eventually driving one. That's part of your therapy, right? Prolonged exposure doesn't really work when you've got something like complex PTSD. And in the beginning, you know, you asked me how I found my way into this. I officially found my way into this when I suffered acute post-traumatic stress disorder in Uh, February of 2002, when I was attacked by three gang members in Chicago who I owed money to from my days as a productive and healthy crack addict in the city of Chicago. And um, these guys had finally caught up with me. And it's a long story. I write about it in the book and everything. But um, as it went down, I had to knife somebody and back over someone with my car in order to get out. And that was extremely traumatic, like really bad. And uh, I had a therapist at the time. He's one of my mentors. His name is Thomas Goforth. He's a wonderful man. He's a Presbyterian minister and a radical therapist. He was part of the Weather Underground and the Black Panthers in the '60s. And I mean, the guy was just my one of my most important mentors. is incredible, dude. And I'm telling him all this is what's going on. he's like, yeah, you know, you have PTSD. I'm like, what? PTSD, why? And he says, yeah. And he says, actually, you have two forms of PTSD. I'm like, whoa, hold on. One one problem at a time here. And so that literally got put on pause for a number of years. And it had he, I really let him... F- like, had I been able to take in what he was saying, he's saying, you have a developmental form of trauma called complex post-traumatic stress disorder, and that's a result of growing up in an abusive environment and having being exposed constantly to negative, adverse, painful, or anxious stimuli. And I had allergies and all kinds of like you know, uh, psychosomatic problems because of it, you know, and hives and like. Dude, I was a mess as a kid, you know. And and then, you know, as an adult, I wasn't much better. And he's saying this is a whole other form of trauma. So you got both now. you got the acute form, which is over an event. It's a quantifiable thing. And it causes a very specific set of symptoms. And you've got the complex form, which is much more insidious and pernicious. And in certain people, like people in my family, um... It leads to such developmental retardation, ultimately, that they, when they cross the 40-year-old barrier and become middle-aged, they are no longer capable of taking care of themselves because they can only really react as, and function as a young person. They haven't matured enough to adapt to the world, which is requiring a different response out of them, so they quickly find themselves socially isolated, unable to find employment, unable to connect with people, unable to have long-term relationships. And that just feeds whatever addictions or self-medications that are going on. And most don't last past 40 without being incarcerated, institutionalized, committing suicide, or dying by OD or other accident. My sister died right at 40. You know, I made it. I'm gonna be 48 in two years. The odds were totally stacked against me, worse than my sister, and I made it. I don't know how. I'm one of the rare few. But what's going on, Michael, is not as alien as people might understand, and although I may sound strange to some people, and certainly those who know me would say I'm batshit crazy, um, but that's just a comfortable and familiar metaphor that belies and underscores the fact that people are still really uncomfortable by all of this. And when our friends go crazy through understandable things like nervous breakdowns, which I experienced, you know, and have things like trauma and have addiction we don 't know how to react to that. Um, I you know lost touch with a large group of people, mostly out of the festival world you know which proved itself to not really be much of, you know, of much substance to begin with, but that's my own trip and other people have their own experiences and I'm not not here to rag on that necessarily unless I'm asked specific questions. Um, But I did find that this one particular community of people, okay, yeah, it's largely predicated on a bunch of people that can't really exist out in normal society and need to get together and party all the time because just being bored or feeling normal is kind of like not acceptable. So life is a party. Of course, they don't want anyone dragging down the party. So when I show up with problems a few years ago, saying "Jesus, I need help," everyone's like, "Yeah, bummer, later." <laughs> and I was really, bit- I was bitter about that shit for a while i was super fucking bitter but that was before i took responsibility for my own part and i was like dude you probably look like a crazy person to him if not sounding like when you already sound crazy to most people but like when you really are crazy because you're out of your mind and you're not in control of yourself boy you must scare the fuck out of people like well and then i think about everybody else who goes through that there's yeah, also please. the larger
1: part of it which i think reaching back If everyone is suffering from some sort of like low-grade chronic inflammation and stress, then we're all probably right on the cusp of that window of tolerance where, you know, people without the skills for coping with or more actively addressing their stressors and their stress response uh you know you can't like i saw a paper recently talking about how the me too movement uh was in many cases Re-triggering the trauma of the people who were step, who were coming forward and yep and intervening like preventing a legitimate discussion because it was pushing everyone out of their it's window of on. tolerance so i've actually i've actually had a uh you know wait, yeah, it, but it's a witch hunt that's hurting. In many cases, it seems to be hurting the people.
0: The that,
1: yeah, so so the, you know, when I hear yes. this, this this thing of like coming to people with with your your problems and then be like, oh yeah, that's too bad. See you later. I you know I used to ha- really be frustrated and and upset about that response, and then I started thinking, Jesus, you know, like if everyone is just doing their best to manage. In this situation, then being the guy that comes forward and says, hey, I've got a problem, I need help, is reflecting their own sort of locked down, repressed, marginalized parts of their own psyche in a way that is, that is retriggering. Whatever they're trying to avoid, like explicitly, it's not just like it's not just oh, you know, I like happy things. It's like everyone is under an insane amount of stress, and like not everyone is capable of handling that compassionately.
0: Yeah, let's look at the psychological profile of most people in the festival world. They were the kids that were picked on in school. They were never popular, uh, which is why they recreate the same popularity dynamics once they get into a a different, smaller uh, pond with less fish. Um, So it's easier to rise and gain prominence and all of this stuff, and for people to come into it not being, you know, Shireen from New Jersey, but being, you know, Shakti Sunfire from, you know, uh, Planet Venus or some shit like that. And so they come in with these, you know, crafted identities, they come to escape, they want to be somebody else. And... That veneer cracks very easily the minute real problems show up. And I was a little bit more intimately connected to this because of the fact that I came into the whole world a little bit more compassionate about crazy people. <laughs> um, but also equally like intimidated by them because I had not yet come to terms with my own families and my own personal like you know insanity i guess is the just the easiest way to put it even though it's not traditional you know diagnosable insanity i never like took leave of my senses or lost reason but i definitely was batshit fucking crazy for a while and everybody goes through something like that especially if you go through some kind of trauma because it overturns and upends everything in your life, like everything. A nervous breakdown is real. It's what happens when your nervous system gets shot. I said that earlier. But what that feels like is that you no longer are capable of handling or performing the normal pressures of your life. Everything becomes overwhelming. It creates Panic attacks and anxiety shutdowns where your body actually stops working. The thought of having to complete anything that is challenging shuts huge sectors of your whole physiology down. Your brain stops working. You panic. Uh, You shake. Like you find that even like minor stressors start to put you to a place where you can't handle stimuli around you. you you start to withdraw from other people you find that you can't express what you're going through there's no vehicle for connecting with it so you feel odder and odder and you withdraw more and more and you suffer more and more and you get weirder and weirder because the more we isolate the more other types of pathology start to come out like my favorite activity these days which is talking to myself <laughs> I literally spend most of my day as if I have a two-year-old in a high chair seated in the kitchen and I'm just talking at it but I'm just talking with myself you know and that is that became that came about both as, as three ways one being a creative writer and performer and doing my routines and and editing out loud that became a hardwired practice but then you isolate and you suffer, and you don't have anyone to process with. you start doing it with yourself out loud. A lot of what you're seeing on the street when you see somebody like shouting or talking to themselves that are clearly schizophrenic or going or they have schizoaffective due to severe trauma or something, they're they're having the conversations that they can't have in the real world. Mm. My nervous breakdown was 2015. And in the last two years, like I've been all over, man, I went to, I lived in Mexico for a good chunk of that time, worked for two Ibogaine clinics, went to Peru, took all the plant medicine, did all, I did everything I could possibly do. I'm still just pulling myself out of it now, three years later, there's still a, a, a you know, a goddamn nuclear bomb blast of, of wreckage from it. You never really like get over all of it. It changes you forever. I was a hyper aggressive, hyper confident alpha male going into this thing and now I am like (laughs) I feel more like Tom Waits man I feel like that's really where I'm at these days you know I'm a little Tom Petty and a little Tom Waits I just I went from Charles to Tom And I'm just kind of sitting back, shaking my head, going, well, you know, man, you can do that shit if you want to, but uh, that's not going to work out too good for you. And, um, you know, I've come to an acceptance about who I am. I don't need to be anyone anymore. Like, I'm nobody anymore compared to who I used to be. I had, like, or at least what was the perception of influence and responsibility and status and power. And it was all transient. It was all an illusion. It was all predicated on other people's desires and needs. And them harnessing my energy and other people's energies to manifest their dreams. And that's what society is really about. That's what the pyramid's about. And that's what everything's about, you know. And um, in coming back to all of this, uh, you realize at some point if you're serious about it. Because we talk a big healing game in this world that we live in, Michael. Everyone's a healer around us. Everyone's a healer. Well, I hope by this point I don't have to point out that that's a load of fucking horse shit and that there's no such thing as a healer. No human can heal another human, except within a very narrow context. There are some neurosurgeons, and I can tell you that definitely a group from Chicago who work on all the professional sports athletes, they gave me a shoulder again. I can say that, yeah, those are specific ailments mechanically that can be quote-unquote healed. There is no healing, really, of the psyche and the mind. It's just adaptation and evolution. And a mind that and, and a system that is subjected to prolonged trauma and stress will adapt and evolve, and it will eventually fry. And it'll learn how to survive, but it can't survive the same way other people can. So these days, I don't dig crowds. I don't go around a lot of other people. I can't handle all the energy. I'm not s- stupid enough to say I'm an empath because it's got nothing to do with that. I just, it's, 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 you just feel like you're getting hit by those foam fucking, you know, rage sticks that people have in therapy. But that's what you feel like when you go out in public, like you're just being bombarded with it. And a lot of that are head games that you're playing with yourself because when you've gone through a nervous breakdown, one of the main hallmarks of it is that you, you lose your confidence, you lose your mojo, you know? Mm. Eventually, you have, to, you have to make a choice. You know, you have to decide, okay, am I going to, am I going to accept what this really means? And am I going to do something about it? Am I going to follow this through to the logical conclusion or am I just going to do what everybody else in our culture seems to be doing to me? Which is trying to go back and, and, and recreate or hold on to the past or what we used to be, not realizing that we're changing every day, every moment. And that if you really believe that there's a God or predestination or fate, if you really believe that shit, then you have to accept and open up your mind to the fact that possibly your path is not what you imagined and that you're not going to be famous and and, and you're not going to like go to the best after party at at Burning Man and you're not going to like get into billionaire's camp and hang out with fucking Elon Musk. Like maybe you're, thing is to serve food in a homeless shelter and be grateful for it because by some bizarre turn of events you went from Johnny Burner to Joe Homeless and that's happening all the time too, you know
1: Stay tuned for the rest of this conversation with Charles Shaw as well as episodes with Robot sex scholar John Danaher David Bronner of Dr. Bronner's Soaps Cyborg musician Onyx Ashanti Digital artist Archon Nair Geneticist David Krantz Science fiction journalist George Dvorsky Jamaica Stevens of Reinhabiting the Village Futurist Nathan Waters Futurist Stowe Boyd And so many more Upcoming episodes of Future Fossils, subscribe at iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to support this show and get the rest of this conversation early, please go to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Big thanks to MindPod Network for your syndication and to you for listening to this episode. Reach out to me anytime at Podcast at gmail.com and have a most wonderful eon.